Latinas in Clinical Research, welcome back to another live webinar. Today we have uh, our special guest today is Dr. Edmundo Tapia. He is a Mexican, uh, doctor from Mexico um, with a specialization in internal medicine with more than five years experience on, in clinical care. Epidemiological, <laughs> those words, uh, studies in clinical research. His professional experience includes uh, medical staff to primary for primary prevention care, particularly in obesity and type 2 diabetes. Some uh, therapeutic areas that are very uh, common nowadays and I think are growing more and more. Uh, I I think the statistics were showing that Mexico is heading to be the number one country uh, with uh, diabetes type 2. Uh, so it's, it's very important and, and, and obviously you're in the right place for that, right? <laughs> uh, uh, so doctor, um, uh, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us and I will let you introduce yourself. Um, and uh, your experience, your education, and then we go from there. Yeah, so thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. And uh, I think you you said it pretty correctly. So basically my my background is as an internal medicine doctor, and I have some experience. I spent four years uh, doing uh, epidemiological studies and clinical research in, uh, in the Netherlands, in Europe. And uh, yeah, basically type 2 diabetes metabolism and obesity are, are my main core and uh, specialities. Yes. You know what, uh, Dr. Tappe, just really quick, because you, you mentioned obesity. My PI that I'm, I'm working with on getting studies, he really wants a GLP-2 inhibitor study. I don't know what this is. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> is this something that's new for research as far as obesity is concerned? GLP-1. Or GLP-1. Oh, okay. Okay. GLP-1 maybe. Yeah. Shows you what I know. Yeah. Um, I think more and more it's, uh, it's becoming a, a very interesting um, therapeutic option for obesity. And I've, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's already approved as an obesity medication in F by the FDA and, uh, and also EMA in Europe. So I understand that now, particularly the United States and Mexico are going to be fields, uh, are, are going to be interesting for this kind of medication, definitely. All right, thank you. So, Doctor, now that you mentioned that you were doing research in Netherlands, can you tell us about it, how it is, um, how that is different of doing research in Mexico? I know you're trans, uh, uh, transitioning right now, so mm -hmm. it will be very interesting to hear your story. Yeah, I think... Um, I did some research uh, in, in Mexico, of course, not as a PI or something like that after med school. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's it's like every place. There's some bureaucratic stuff you need to, to learn the process and to turn around. Uh, but in Europe, I think, especially in the, in the Netherlands, which is my experience, the, the Netherlands universities are very well prepared and they are very used to collaborate with industry or even with, uh, you know, uh, organizations that fund projects. So I think it's a pretty, if you ask me uh, from my opinion and from my perspective, the Netherlands has become a very uh, key element in doing research in Europe. They're very good at it. They have all the processes uh, completely uh, understood and, and they, they are very good at it. So I think it's very easy. And also something that is very important to mention perhaps is that I think the Netherlands is probably one of the most, one of the yeah, probably top five countries that they can speak English. Uh, and this is very interesting because participants can speak English very well. So even though you are obliged to, you know, the, do the uh, information brochure and everything in, in Dutch, people can understand English and they are willing to collaborate with researchers that do not speak Dutch. So I think that makes it a very interesting country to conduct clinical research. And uh, you're probably the second person that mentioned the, uh, about the English in research, like, for example, all the, the materials and all the like uh, the um, platforms and software are in English or is in the actual language in the, uh, where it's carried out? It's in English. 
it's in English. And um, of course, you are again by law. You need to you know to put the uh, information in Dutch. Um, of course, when they sign their consent, their their the informed consent, someone that it's a native speaker must be present in the room. Um, but people speak very good English, so. In my case, that I do not speak Dutch very well, I was able to talk to them and communicate and explain some stuff. And then if there was some extra doubt, of course, the native speaker who was always present in the room could explain in, the, in their local language. But people are very keen to, to, to speak in English and they are not afraid to participate in, in something like that, even though the, the researcher do not speak Dutch. So I think it's a very interesting country to do, to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and how, how did you end up in Netherlands? Yeah, well, um, I always wanted to do research in Erasmus Medical Center, which I think it's a very nice hospital. Uh, and yeah, I did there uh, like a second master's degree and I was involved in the Erasmus, uh, or I did my thesis in the Erasmus, uh, in the Rotterdam study, sorry, in the Rotterdam study, which is, I would say, is, could be compared to the Framingham study. Um, it's a huge data set. And after that, I was kind of hired uh, on a, in another university to conduct a, a phase two uh, clinical trial. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> and 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 it this was for uh, you had a contract for a period, or or why did you finally decide to go back to Mexico? So I, I that's something interesting. I'm still not sure if I will go back or I will stay here in Mexico. Um, I think one of the yeah, one of the reasons is also that it's not that easy to conduct research in, in Mexico, I think, in my perspective. Um, it's doable, of course, but it's something that I'm still in the process of learning. And um, yeah, I don't know. Why, why is it not so easy? Because Judy, Judy was telling us the same thing. Um, she, being in a border town, she was doing st uh, studies in Mexicali and having hard time so why like why is it what makes it so difficult to do to start a site in mexico or just even start a study there i, I would like to hear what judy says first and then maybe i can pick it up from <laughs> um you know I, th i think it has a lot to uh what you just mentioned about where you were working at where the regulations it seems um like they're already set in place they have a good process they have a good system sites know what they're doing sponsor cro's and i want to say uh, mexico has a lot of work in that end like there's some things in place but there's it's not so straightforward i i guess i would say and depending where, where you're located in mexico um the local you know, agencies you got to work with, it seems a little, it's just a lot more work to, to set it up and implement. So it can be more time consuming for you if you're selected as a site to get started on a study compared to other countries from my experience. I think, I think that's also my, my perspective. I think, um, of course, industry funded studies are, are very well pro processed or they have all the all flow chart of how to do it. Uh, but local regulation could be something very different from a state to state. And considering that Mexico is a big country, so that is uh, something that plays a, a role. And the other thing that, from my perspective, again, would be a, an element to take into consideration is that the, the system, the healthcare system is multi-fragmented. You know, you have the private system and the public system, and that also changes uh, things about ethics committees and stuff like that. So that is something to also take into consideration when doing or starting studies or sites in Mexico. Right, exactly. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of local agreements you also have to put in place with like a local hospital, local lab, this and that. And then, you know, I'm not familiar how common that is in other countries. Um, it's not so common. Like the US, we're used to doing a lot of things centralized. In Mexico, it's a lot different. Um, so that's something to also consider. So you also have to have someone that's working for you that knows how to implement these agreements, to follow up, to make sure you can get what you need in place for any new study that you start. Um, and somebody who, yeah, pretty much has a time because it's a lot of time that you're back and forth until you get these things in place. Definitely. But I think I, I think COFEPRIS, which would be the, the main uh, organization or the federal organization taking care of it, I think it's, it's kind of evolving and I think it will be eventually easier to conduct clinical research and starting sites in Mexico. 
Yeah, maybe it would be a good idea to find uh, in our network somebody who uh, has a lot of knowledge in the regulatory process uh, in Mexico, or is most specifically in in uh, in um, Mexico City. That's where you are located, right? Yeah, I'm in Mexico City. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think also, yeah, Mexico has a huge population with so many different uh, characteristics that could be. Uh, talking about diversity would be very interesting for studies. I don't know what you guys think, but from, from oh, my 100 percent, <laughs> 100%. And then unfortunately, the Hispanic population have the tendency to develop uh, a lot of conditions that no other communities do. I think the communities that have that get affected more uh, for, uh, like a uh, has more incidence or developing conditions are the uh, Hispanic population as well as the African-Americans. Yeah. yeah, sure. So I think that's something very interesting. Sure. Um, and I have a question, Dr. Tapia. Uh, right now, Sabo, since you've been back from the Netherlands, um, what are you currently doing right now to kind of, so I guess, keep your foot in the door with research or are you kind of holding off at the moment and still just doing your, your practice? So I'm I'm kind of in between stuff. So I'm still having a, a you know yes a foot in, in in research in the Netherlands, and here I'm just uh, dealing with private practice and stuff stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. And I guess from a PI's perspective, you know, seeing how much easier it was in Netherlands, and you know the kind of bird uh, bird like hurdles that you go through being in Mexico City, Mexico City. Um, hearing you say that, you know, you're not hundred percent sure if you want to stay there just because of that, right? Just the fact that you're, what you're passionate about is difficult just because of processes, right? Um, from a doctor's perspective, how do you feel, you know, that could kind of, um, who do you feel that could step in to make that process a little bit better? Do you think that that's kind of integrated between the CRO sponsors and maybe even like government or regular, uh, like regulatory facilities, or, I mean, who do you, who do you feel should be, I guess, the entity that comes in and try to, tries to help that? Cause clearly there's, there's a lot of lacking on multiple areas. And it seems as if, at least from my, from my viewpoint, that it can't just be the institution. It can't just be the PI. I don't know if it could just be the CRO. It looks, it sounds like everybody kind of has to harmoniously work together mm -hmm. and it's just, I mean, it seems very, you know, especially from all the other uh, interviewers we've had, interviewees we've, ha we've interviewed, it's just, it seems very, very, very difficult, right? And so just from a doctor's perspective, what do you, what do you think? I think indeed everyone plays a role in, in it, but I think what I mentioned before, coffee prices, I think it's evolving in a positive way. So when they change some regulations, I think industry and other funding opportunities will be more keen to to try and, and, and walk the process and walk the mile, right? Um, but everyone needs to play a role. And also I think, I, I, I don't know in the United States, but I, I also think that in Mexico, some, and that's also something different that I learned in, in the Netherlands. A lot of people in the Netherlands from a doctor perspective, they are used to do research and they are used to do clinical work. And here in Mexico, from my own uh, experience, um, either you choose one path or the other. So yeah. it's difficult for people to just stay in between. And I think it's also hard. It's not something that it's easy to combine, right? Mm -hmm. um, so again, everyone plays a role, but I think when Coffeebridge evolves, which I think they're doing, um, that will be something um, very interesting to, to look into. For sure. I actually think we need to find somebody from there so we can interview them, see if we can get some more insight, right? And then possibly see if we can do a dual interview between a CRO, somebody from CRO or regulatory and, and that individual, because I, I think it's just the communication issue, right? And if we can somehow get people together or get the conversation rolling, you know, small baby steps, but some steps nonetheless. So yeah. um, thank you for that. I think that yeah. to further expand on Ashley's question, I mean, who's who's responsible for it. I ultimately, I think it boils down to the pharmaceutical companies. And if Mexico is a market that they see and, and Latin America as a whole, I mean, you guys know the co-founders of LICR, we've been approached by, for our other businesses, by quite a few pharma, big pharma 
that want to tap into Latin America. So that's not just because they think it's a nice thing to do. They see it as a growing market. Not only that, most of these studies are international now. So the data from Latin America definitely can contribute to all the, the diversity initiatives in the United States for the drugs. I mean, it's still the biggest market here in the United States. So I think, you know, a lot of people look at this thing linearly, and I think we need to look at it holistically because it impacts every country, really. Like if, if we start doing more study, more sites in Latin America, that data is still going to help sell more drugs here in the United States. I think that's what the sponsors are starting to see. Yeah, definitely. And if I may ask something to you, if you have the date, the data, or I don't, which country has more research in Latin America? Is it Mexico? I think it's Colombia or Argentina, but this is all anecdotal. Um, I don't really actually have Columbia. data. Is it Colombia? I, I figure it was one of those two countries. Yep. Yeah. Nick, uh, welcome, Nicole. How's it going? <laughs> Hi. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think so. I mean, I'm really excited to be listening in on this. Christine uh, Naro invited me um, earlier this morning, and I, you know, I've worked in clinical research for some time. I'm Black, uh, so I don't have any Hispanic or, you know, Latinx um, background, but um, I do a lot of research around, you know, disparities in clinical trials. I have a small podcast about it. Um, this like true crime. And I just covered the Puerto Rican clinical trials, the Puerto Rican um, birth control clinical trials. And I also work for a pharmaceutical company. I work for AbbVie and I'm heading up a lot of our diversity efforts there. Um, and you're right. There's a big push. Uh, to, and I mean, need, and it should have been happening, you know, a long time ago. I think in academic research, it has been. Pharmaceuticals are trying to catch up now and everyone's trying to be first, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah. I come from academia. So this is my first go at corporate. It's been interesting. So um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a real, I hate using the word market, but there's a real opportunity um, here to, include black and brown voices and participation in an ethical way if we get ahead of it and push the ethics and i heard words about you know harmonizing and you know between cro's and clinics and pharmaceuticals but really we got to take that harmonization from you know international guidelines and start figuring out how we're going to mandate um a lot of that ethical conduct so anyway love the conversation thanks for having Sure. Thank you so thank much. You, and and again, Latinos in Clinical Research, we're open to all ethnicities. So thank you so much for being here and listening in. Um, I'm personally a fan of the what you just mentioned for your for your podcast. So please drop it, you know, in the comment section so that anybody else can get that opportunity to to listen in on your your podcast. For sure. Thank you, Doctor. I I uh, um, I've been thinking that if it makes, I mean, obviously Mexico is a, a large country and, and you were mentioning that the regulations varies depending on the state, but at the end of the day, are the same bodies regulating all the states? And, and, and if this, this is the case, which bodies are those? Yeah, I think so. Coffee priest would be, I think, similar to FDA. Um, and then I think the national health system would be the, the other main regulator. But for example, what comes to my mind is if you're conducting or screening or including patients or participants in a private hospital, you would need the approval of COFEPRIS, but you would submit, for example, for to the ethicals committee of the private hospital, right? And that would be very different if you would like to do it in a national or a public institution from, from what I know. So these kind of things can change um, from state or from state to state, and also I think it will also impact how used they are to to having research done in their hospitals. So that's also something interesting to 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 conduct. Yeah, uh, so it's basically like the the uh, obviously the the uh, the hospital have their own SOPs to do this. Uh, to carry out the clinical trials, so you have to adhere to those. So, for example, if you open your site within a, a hospital, a private hospital, is that part of the hospital or is that your own business? 
Yeah, I think that would be your own business. You would you would kind of pay perhaps for use in some facilities of the hospital, perhaps. Uh, but it would be kind of your own business. But again, it depends. There are many, many private hospitals in Mexico. So again, it depends on, on, on the case, hospital case basis. Yeah. Okay, because I was going to ask then if it's if it's your own business, then you still have to adhere to their SOPs, or you can have your own SOPs. I think you would have to adhere to the hospital SOPs, but within your private practice, your private office consultation, you can conduct a protocol. Yeah. Of course, if it doesn't interfere, if it doesn't have a conflict with the hospital SOPs, right? Mm, very interesting. Uh, so it's interesting. So, for example, you could have your private practice in a hospital, in a private hospital, and then you can see your regular patients, so patient care, but you could also see participants. And if you need to, I don't know, if it's a, a study that involves an IV drug or, a, or an investigational product, then you could use perhaps one of the facilities for infusing uh, IB medication and you would have to pay perhaps the overheading or something, but you, you don't need to have those facilities. Those facilities are from the hospital and you can use them, right? I think that's a great synergy and, and that brings uh, makes it easier, for example, in, that, in the cases that you have to use different other, um, um, I mean, uh, facilities or services, or let's say, for example, if you're doing an IBS study and then you need to, uh, uh, to do a colonoscopy, then you have it just there and you don't need it to get it. Um, I mean, you don't have to find an older place or send the patient somewhere else because it's, everything is there. So I think that's fascinating and, uh, and, and it's, it's helpful when you are doing research and you when you have everything already established. Um, uh, so the, 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 the part that is difficult is to actually <laughs> uh, establish the business. And I have a question because, for example, in Colombia, and, and I think basically everywhere, but I don't know if in Mexico it's the same, when you open a business, uh, like a, um, um, a healthcare business, um, be, is that treated as a business? And then on top of that, you have all the regulatory or the regulatory bodies for that specific business. I don't know if my question makes sense. So for example, you have to uh, uh, get registered the business Mm -hmm. as a just as a regular business and then um get all the 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 medical uh regulations and then on top of that the research regulations yeah i think it's like that you need to get you know the, the to see patients or to see participants and on top of that, the the business regulation of course yeah very similar to i guess like the us if you set up another business so for example when we had our office our pi had a inpatient nursing home and then we set up research in the facility but it was like its own business we had to get our own certificates and follow whatever policies you know local laws to set that up um yeah. so it was kind of separate but yet we still had access to some of the patients within and his the, clinic the, i guess yeah mm -hmm. sorry judy and it was this was in um, mexicali or where was it mexicali mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's like that so it's it's something like the same but not the same it's weird right yeah <laughs> And, and how, uh, I mean, obviously you're just starting your business in Mexico, but uh, have you heard how uh, open are people in Mexico to participate in clinical trials? Mm, I think that's something that I, I'm still figuring out. Um, and I would like to hear from you guys from the States, what's the, what's the main driver uh, of participants to join a clinical trial? And, I, and then I will give you my impression oh wow i think it depends on the studies it depends yeah, on the studies example, in the area but yeah. i would say for my community it's um uh, another alternative option like they've tried all these medications because we do psych cns studies so they've already tried a few depression they just want something different maybe see if this will work in a clinical trial so that's one of the motivators um and being able to come in and be in a study get seen by a physician, research staff right away compared to going to a local facility. Sometimes it takes months to get like your first initial appointment, like at the county mental health office. So that's a huge, um, that's a long wait for someone who has mental health issues. Yeah, so and I think in other cases, it's also uh, because, 
for example, for the Hispanic community, is the Hispanic community have the tendency to truly believe in the doctor. So if the doctor say this is the best or the most appropriate, um, I mean, I, I cannot call research treatment, but option for you, then uh, they will have that tendency to, to follow the doctor's instructions. So yeah. um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking probably Mexico is the same case, but not sure about that. Yeah, so I think it's it's also it depends on the population and the and the community. Um, I think when where where you have all the infrastructure would be the private sector. You know, when it comes to MRIs and uh, PET CT and whatever you can imagine, uh, you have that uh, that equipment. Um, but that particular community or the population that have access uh -huh. to that private sector of healthcare. Probably they all when they are looking for alternatives, they have the money, even if it's out of their pocket, to go to the United States, right? So that makes it difficult to keep them here or interested here. And the population that is that has no financial resources to get an alternative, probably they will look into opportunities in a clinical trial. But the problem is if they are not like national reference institutions. Um, then maybe the hospital doesn't have the, the equipment or the or the human resource to conduct a trial. So that's the problem. So you have different communities and different types of uh, resources. And from my um, from what I saw in the Netherlands is people that are join is not because they need the money or it's not because they are looking for alternatives. It's because they are really and truly interested in research. So what I saw from the participants is that they experienced research for the first time in a clinical trial. They liked it. Of course, they thought it was useful to have like a checkup or the way they see it, um, but they liked the research and they were, uh, they enjoyed the experience. So they did it again and they wow. looked at studies. So I think that's, that's what I experienced from, from the Netherlands and here it's different, I would say. Wow, that's totally yeah. different. Yeah, that's pretty the cool. first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, an, what an educated population. Yeah. <laughs> back to resources <laughs> and education yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have to, they, are, they are very, very educated population. Yeah. So that kind of goes into like recruitment. If you have like, you know, a research center in Mexico is connecting with the right physicians, facilities, hospitals, educating them on research and maybe establishing some kind of, you know, collaboration, because that's how you're going to recruit your participants. But I do know from past studies, even working on US studies, there were some Mexico sites. And honestly, some of these Mexico sites are really uh, well established. We're one of the top enrollers in clinical trials, uh, trials that were based, like, I guess, mostly in US and a few sites in Mexico, they did better than some of the US sites. And they were able to do things and recruit participants in different ways that sometimes it takes longer for us to do in the US. For example, it was a children adolescent depression study. They were able to get into schools, uh, educate the, I think, teachers and parents about the study where here in the US, you have to go to the board of, um, what is it, the board meetings and go through a bunch of hoops to VP, the principal, and maybe you'll get in, maybe you won't. Um, if yeah. it's private for profit, they won't, they're not very interested in allowing you to share your information. But Mexico, it was more, they were more open to it. So they were able to recruit a lot of participants for that study. Yeah, I think that's also something that uh, could be of interest in Mexico, that uh, mm -hmm. the regulation perhaps is not that tight. Mm -hmm. I think eventually it will become like in Europe that you cannot share many information and stuff like or approach people. But, but I think now in Mexico, uh, it's something interesting. And again, I think eventually it will become tighter, the regulation, but I agree with you, Judy. Yeah. I think all the more reason why these, you know, pharmaceutical companies like Dan said, and like the CROs and sponsors, they should be making a foothold right now while, you know, there's not as many barriers while they can not only get in and, you know, assist, but they could also help formulate a more easier process, right? Be a part of that conversation as opposed to getting there and having to jump around, right? Um, I I just, I find it, you know, difficult to understand why that's not already happening. But I mean, like Dana mentioned, uh, you know, the separate companies we have, they have, they have been reaching out. So it, we are seeing like, I guess, you know, a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel to see that, you know, there's actual movement and interest happening. It's just, you know, hoping that, you know, um, through these organizations, as well as alternative organizations for different ethnicities as well, are coming together and really trying to push it in front of them and say, hey, like, 
you know, I mean, it benefits everybody on a whole, whether, you know, like we had said, Nicole, uh, Nicole Fisher said, you know, so there's a market. I mean, yeah, there's a market, of course, you know, it can benefit the companies, it can benefit the patients. I mean, the fact that, I mean, I personally, I have family uh, in Monterrey that has traveled, you know, not, not just like traveled hours, but you know, that's money, that's time from work, you know, willing to do that to come over here and just to find any physician, like that's how much they're wanting these resources. Like, I don't think, I, I feel like there's like a miscommunication understanding how much patients and subjects that are potential subjects that are in Mexico, how much they need these resources. Um, but, you know, hopefully uh, with these videos and maybe with some more communication, if any sponsors, CROs are watching, um, you know, hopefully we can get this conversation going because clearly there's a massive need yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing the labor shortage just in our economy in general. Healthcare is really no different. You know, I where I am at here in Yuma, Yuma, Arizona, my doctor can't hire MAs because they don't want to work right now. You know, there um, there's a lot of issues right now as far as labor shortage, and what does that do? That reduces the bandwidth of the physicians. So now, what happens? Well, that trickles down to the patient care. Patients used to get seen 20 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe by a provider. Now they're lucky to get five. So when you present research as an alternative to them and say, look, not only will you continue seeing your doctor and get like five minutes of FaceTime with him, but did you know that we are also doing this research study here? And while it's not treatment, you will get care. The NP is going to be here. Some of our visits require six hour monitoring, continuous monitoring. So to answer the original question, Dr. Tapia, of why do patients uh, do studies here, it varies. The disparities are as great here, if not greater, than they are or as they are in Mexico, as far as, you know, access to resources. And I think we all have a lot of work to do. And I think at the end of the day, it boils down to economics. These drug companies need more patients because of this clinical research at all time high as far as the number of studies that are out there and the lack of resources. And we just need new PIs and new physicians. So if we can get the physicians from Mexico City or we can get them from Imperial, California or Rio Grande, Texas, you know, that's where they're going to go. I think I think the world is getting flat in that regard. And I think the global market is one market now. Um, and that's the way we see the drug companies looking at this. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's also, you, you mentioned something very imp important, uh, the time, right? Uh, you don't have the time as a, as a physician seeing patients to, to pitch the idea of, of a clinical research, of a clinical trial that is running or something. So that's also something very important. And, um, and I, I like your phrase now that it's, it's becoming just one market and one, it's becoming flat. There's no barriers anymore. And now with, um, I think, decentralized uh, studies that's also something in, really interesting to look into that you can reach many communities like that yeah i mean the disparities will continue to exist but hopefully research just gives more options for others and if, if not better treatment at least better medical attention which is something that clinical research does promise and from what i've seen it is able to deliver uh even the most overworked sites you know they take care of their patients as opposed to private practice where depending on the area, you're lucky, <laughs> you're lucky to get five minutes where I'm at. I have private insurance. It's if I want to see a doctor right now, it's going to take me two months. I got to get on a two month waiting list wow. to see a doctor. Luckily oh I work with doctors so I could just see them like <laughs> off the books, but not everybody has that opportunity. But two, two months on a waiting list for just primary care physician or for yeah, probably, probably to see mm -hmm. me for five minutes too and tell me yeah. that I'm okay and eat my vegetables. Yeah. Well, just, therapist just, remember, just, just remember what happened to me. I had kidney stones. I needed that urgent surgery and I had to wait almost two months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And say where I'm originally from, um, for sure specialists, you would wait three, four months from a rural area. Luckily they've been growing. Um, and it was the same thing for research. I mean, people would literally drive four hours away to San Antonio just to see a physician. And this would, this would be for something serious with a physician they have no like history with, no trust, you know, established just because they need to get seen. And that I find also kind of creates, you know, uh, 
a, a dynamic or a situation that could actually like if you know they're with the physician, whether it's research or you know any type of healthcare that is not you know uh, how do I say you know empathetic to you know their background if they have a, a language barrier or something like that just because they're trying to get seen. Um, it can be a bad experience, right? They not get the care that they need or get the attention that they need, ultimately not trusting the healthcare system or not trusting research. There goes one potential subject, one patient, right? That just had a bad experience Um, and all because the resources within their area that can be easily facilitated if there's communication, resources provided, et cetera, um, with the PI or physician that they already have an established trust with and possibly even, you know, the connection with language, right? Um, and so I really do think that, that, yeah, this is something that is super, super, super important. And, you know, hopefully we can make strides on this, whether through LICR or, you know, other organizations, but yeah, very important topics. If I, if I may ask something, does the, does the language plays a role in oh, favor yeah. or against in the Latinx community over there? Uh, well, in my area, yes, for sure. Like my father, um, my father, most definitely uh, he, he, I get so mad at him because he keeps jumping physicians to the point where, <laughs> yeah, to the point where like he, even when he goes, he doesn't even pay attention to what they're telling him because he's just like, oh, you know, the other ones told me that I didn't trust them, da, 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 you know, in Spanish. Right. And I'm just, I'm telling him you need, you need to listen. You need to create like, you know, a relationship and, you know, bad experiences ultimately lead to that kind of a scenario. Right where he's coming to me for advice and I'm not even a physician, you know, like, what do you think? And so, you know, I will reach out to my friends that are physicians and see if they can speak with him so that he can, he can use me as that catapult, you know, to facilitate the, the relationship trust that if I trust them, then he can trust them. So, you know, it comes down to how you treat your patients. Do you speak to them? Do you take your time with them? You know, do you have resources if they, because some patients I, I worked in a, in a rural clinic that was so busy because there was like so many patients and very little physicians, we would see about a hundred patients a day. It was so insanely fast. There was a, there was a few uh, uh, mid-level providers, but it was just so fast because we couldn't, there wasn't a lot of, you know, clinics nearby. And they asked, they also did research. They had a section for private and section for the research. And um, what we did was, you know, if the, patient or the subject, you know, didn't feel comfortable, you know, even when you're speaking in Spanish to them, sometimes they feel insecure to ask questions, right? Even if they have, whether it's English or Spanish. So having the resources available so that they can read it, have some time to feel comfortable to ask the questions, or if there's not, their questions aren't answered through the resources. I mean, there's just so many things in between, right? So many gaps, I feel like, you know, it's just not really considered very thoughtfully, uh, whether it's on the CRO sponsor or pharmaceutical side. And I feel that maybe the best thing for them to do is to, you know, go to the route where it's these sites that are actually there uh, in the thick of it, in these rural communities, right? Because um, it's very different in the cities. I mean, they have similar, similar, similar issues, but when you have that many patients you're having to deal with and also trying to maintain research and a general, you know, practice. It's, there's so many ways that things can, you know, fall, right. Or like get in the cracks and stuff. So, but yeah, definitely language is, is a major, major, major issue for sure. Um, language barrier, excuse me. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Doctor, now that we're talking about language, <laughs> how it is referred in uh, Mexico, the clinical trials, is it Estudios Clinicos or how it is called there? Sí, Estudios Clinicos, aleatorizados. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just keep, uh, because, uh, I mean, I just wonder what was the name in Latin America. And I had that question for a while and I keep always forgetting on asking the, the PIs in, in. Perhaps, perhaps you're right. Perhaps instead of estudios, ensayos clinicos. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you search for ensayos clinicos, probably you will, you will find it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to make it a mission to look for somebody specialized in regulatory. <laughs> I, I, will, I, will also, I will also try to, to, to help in that. 
Yeah, yeah maybe a monitor. A monitor in Mexico would be a good one. Um, I do know someone maybe we can connect with. Yeah, well, um, well, we were well, we were talking. I was looking on on uh, LinkedIn and and I found some, but I'm not sure if they specialize. There is some people that say they are clinical trials specialists, uh, monitors from different um, large uh, CROs like Akivia, PRA, which is now ICON <laughs> um, in Mexico. So that's interesting. I think we, I think we really definitely do that. We had a PIC, we're having a PI series. I think we should have a regulatory series and, mm -hmm. and do it from the different countries because I mean, somebody's not talking and we need to get people <laughs> to talk and <laughs> get this information and, while we're at it, once it's done recording, send it to these pharmaceutical companies that are trying to communicate with us and say, hey, uh, by the way, <laughs> here you go. We had it all ready You're welcome. For you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that would be great. Oh, my gosh. Sure. That would be great indeed. <laughs> I had a question. Uh, in Mexico, uh, Dr. Tapia, is there, like, are there drug companies, biotech companies that are started in Mexico and that do studies there? Like? Because I know I mean, like in Eastern Europe, when I, I went recently and I saw a few sponsors here and there, like biotech companies doing some stuff. I know in Mexico, there's a lot of supplement companies and various things like that, but I'm, I wasn't too sure if there was biotech or pharma companies i know like pfizer j and j they all have offices there and all the cro's do as well but i'm wondering about the biotech scene i know there's some crispr gene therapy or uh, gene editing folks down there uh there's some some organizations but i was just curious about biotech i, I would have to i would have to search for it but i'm not sure i'm i think they are um, yeah but from the top of my head, I, I cannot recall a company in biotech that it's doing something here. But I'm pretty sure they are doing something. It's gonna be it's gonna be my homework. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to try to do that. Mm -hmm. Joe Joe says you need a regulatory manager or specialist, not a regulatory CRA. CROs have those specialists on each country, and sponsors rely on those specialists for those tasks. So okay. thank you, Joe. Oh, thank you. Yeah, very yeah, helpful. Good thank to you so much. You. All right. Monica, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm doing it. Well, as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, does anybody have any any questions for Dr. Tapi? I know we've kind of already pretty drilled him on like a very wide range. Uh, but if there's anything that you guys might have to ask, feel free. Sure. Typing. Oh my gosh. So while we were, oh, sorry, I can't be audio right now. Thanks for the meeting. You are very welcome. Thank you for Thanks. communicating. <laughs> uh, Dr. Tapia, so if for whatever reason, you know, it doesn't work out in Mexico City, where would you, where would you go to go do research? That's a very difficult, that's a different, different <laughs> difficult question. <laughs> Um, I think I would go back to the Netherlands. It's a lovely yeah. country. It's a very nice place to do research. Friendly people. So I would I would go back perhaps. Well, it's nice. It's nice to go there, but we hope everything works out in Mexico. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's also a very very underrated rock scene in the Netherlands. There's a popular <laughs> band called Nightwish. That's it. They're just getting oh a lot goodness. of play. Yeah, Chris, Chris knows all about it. So it's not a bad place to be. But Mexico City, we would love if you go because, you know, we're actually getting approached by drug company, like some big ones saying, hey, do you have contacts? They've never asked us this before. And now they're starting to ask. So I think what I said earlier about it's more of a global market and they need the data. And at the end of the day, it just boils down to economics. I think yep. that's not going to change. I think it's just going to increase like, you know, and unfortunately I think the bad stuff is also like the disparities and the access to treatment and care. And I think research has a role to play in that. Yeah, okay. I, I agree. And I, I like to follow that up Dan and ask like, what, what are you seeing or what do you think that we should be thinking about, you know, before some of those disparities are made even, you know, larger and more disparate um, because just in what I've been seeing, you know, people reaching out, 
random companies reaching out like, hey, we have this data, you know, that'll help you target um, diverse markets, you know what I mean, for your um, research recruitment efforts. And, you know, when I'm, I, I take those calls and I take those meetings and I'm like, all right, this is interesting, but also like kind of terrifying. Where'd you get this? Um, <laughs> why are you peddling it? Why are you selling it? What do you plan on, you, you know, using it for and how there, because there's no framework yet to really, um, I mean, the FDA has put out a couple of guidances, sure, but there's no real framework yet that explains how we should be going about recruiting diverse patients into clinical trials. And I do worry that it's going to be, who's the model? We've seen it in lots of things. Who is the model um, diversity candidate for this? Who's someone who has all their stuff together, who has childcare, who who can take off work, who can, and it never, and it's not, it has potential to not. um, Yeah. I guess, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of negative implications. (laughs) It boils down to financial incentives for the sites. I really believe in private enterprise. I think the sites that are going to succeed are going to be the ones who truly embrace patient centricity. I think, I mean, identifying patients, I hate those companies that say that because it's very misleading. We've Mm -hmm. identified a million patients in your area. Well, that's Mm -hmm. good, but who's going to talk to them? And what if they speak Spanish? And then you got a whole bunch of things that that have to go right. Um, as an example, the, the clinic I'm starting to work with, the PI is my business partner, and, and so is Chris. And then, but underneath him, seven other providers work, and it's their patients. So if I have access to the EMR, I could identify patients too all day long. But who's going to go talk to those providers? Who's going to talk to those patients? You know, Mm -hmm. it's got to be me. It's got to be somebody I train. It's not just going to happen because technology filtered, you know, X number of patients based on my criteria. Like that's just the beginning. The work, there's a lot of work, all the work that goes in after that. So we're a long ways away. I think private enterprise is going to solve a lot of this disparities. But I think what big pharma needs to realize is that they need to invest in more research naive physicians, more research naive clinicians, and give them the tools and show them how they can increase revenue while adding value for their patients, which is Mm -hmm. something very rare uh, for physicians, because usually if they're going to add something, they have to remove something from somewhere else. Whereas in clinical research, they're complementary and they work better if they're together. So I think we just need more of that. And that's, that's one of the things we're trying to do with LICR and I mean, starting to pay off, you know, PI Academy coming out soon. And we've got a few of the big pharma talking to us about, you know, tapping into some of these more underserved areas. So little by little, it's it's grassroots. It's not going to be technology. It's going to be low tech, not not high tech. No, it's not. And I think sponsors have a lot of resources at their disposal that they can use to educate these communities that have these diverse participants and they're not using them correctly. Like all these MS medical science liaisons, these, even the pharma reps, they're already visiting these physicians. Is there something you can do where they can share information about clinical trials? Hey, there's research centers right here next door to you doing this okay. trial, like information like that, but they're not doing it and, and they should be doing more of that. And I think that's gonna, gonna close that gap. Yeah. You, you know, know what? what? You know what, though? They what's interesting to me. And again, I've only been in industry for, I don't know, since February. But um, what's interesting to me is they, I, they are having those conversations, but it's sales. They're having the conversations, but it's not in my background. I know I've said I'm pharma, but my background is community participatory research. I worked in Detroit, south side of Chicago. Like that's I'm grassroots. Right. So when I come into pharma and I see I see what you guys are talking about. And if you have someone in Chicago, because I'm still here. Um, I, I'd love to connect with you guys, you know, offline, um, because that's exactly what I'm trying to build out. Um, we're going to need to have a presence. Pharma is going to need to have a presence in the community. It is not going to be, you know, sending iPads out there. Like you, you'd be so surprised at things I've heard. And I'm like, okay, well, that's okay. <laughs> we do. We have a clinic, yeah. Chris and I, in our consulting company, we have a at least one I can think of off the top of my head there in Southside Chicago, um, okay. Eagle okay. Clinical Research. Uh, 
owned by a former CRA that they're doing very well right now. It's another okay. example of like the private incentives, you know, like hmm. industry offers these incentives, the smart sites kind of figure out how to capitalize and in the end, it should benefit the patients in those underserved areas. And it's doing it on a small scale. I think what the industry wants is on a massive scale. And I think they're looking at technology to be the savior. And I don't think technology is going to be. No. And I think they want a model that's going to fit all these diverse sites. And no, it's not every community. Every site is completely different. The way they're set up, who they're connected to, where they're at. So what works in, you know, I don't know, in Texas doesn't work in Paris. I don't know. It just varies. And I think pharma isn't listening to that (laughs) necessarily. Yeah. Well, they wish decentralized trials can solve everything. It, if yeah. only it could be so simple, you know, and <laughs> yeah. there's almost like, there's almost like an elitist air about it. Like, oh, you know, it's decentralized and they even use the right words like patient centric. We give the patients the choice, but what are they really doing? I mean, all we've seen is just maybe some AI that could pre-identify yeah. patients, but they're not doing the hard stuff of going out and educating them. They're just pre-identifying them. That doesn't mean they're going to join the study. Exactly. And we're passing this burden on to the participants. They're having to do more and they don't want to do that. (laughs) They don't want to do, you know, all this extra work at home. (laughs) I think I found the one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a clinical research consultant and she specializes in regulatory. So I'm going to contact her. And she's freelance, so she doesn't work for anybody. Oh, that's good. good. And she's where? From Mexico? Mexico City. Oh, okay. Nice. Very nice. Well, yeah, let's contact her and get in, let's get her on. Maybe for November or December. One of those. Yeah. Things, if possible. But awesome. You guys, I guess we're coming to the hour. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Tapia. We really appreciated this. Lots of good information. Like Raul just said, great meeting. Yes, I agree very much. Um, Raul, need to have more of these, that's right. Need to have to more Raul. of these conversations <laughs> for sure. Um, so thank you so much for providing your insight, your professional insight, and for taking the time to answer all of our questions. <laughs> um, did anybody, I mean, Monica, Judy, Dan, Chris, did y'all want to say anything before we wrap it up? No, just thank you for your time today. Yeah, yeah thank absolutely. You. Thank you for I'm coming. Send- yeah, I'm sending you the picture with her name and everything, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for so, having so me over. We, so, I had a, a so great we, time. Thanks. Well, thank you. <laughs> so we both contact her and see. Uh, and sure. see. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody so much. Latinos in clinical research members. We appreciate you coming uh, so far every week. So thank you. Um, we will provide more updates on the next meeting, uh, but for now, everybody have a good night, wherever you're from right now. And uh, we will be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.